in worship this morning. Uh, for those of you that I don't know, my name's Brad Kelly. I'm a member here at, uh, at the church. I teach over in the School of Theology on campus. And so many thanks to Pastor Russ and to all of you for the chance to share together a little bit from Scripture as part of our worship this morning. As you've already heard, it's a big day on the Christian calendar today, the first Sunday of the season of Lent, these 40 days that will lead us up to Easter. And uh, it all began, of course, this past Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, what some people called Valentine's Day. Uh, but. <laughs> Being a true Christian, I didn't get my wife flowers for Valentine's Day. I got her a nice little box of ashes in the shape of a heart. I did not. I did, I did not. Uh, uh, but uh, I want to come back to Lent in a moment. But I do want to say every year about this time, uh, right around the start of the season of Lent, I'm always reminded that I believe one of the best things about being a part of a local church, a, a local worshiping body, is that this is a place where we can make mistakes and try to learn and grow from those together. I really believe that is one of the best things about being a part of a church, that, that when we're at our best, this is a place where when things don't go well, Things aren't right. Mistakes are made. We can be honest about those things and try to learn and grow from them together. I know this has been the case throughout my life. Uh, in fact, maybe I'll just offer a little honest confession for Lent to get started here this morning and say uh, back when I was in college, and I didn't go to Point Loma, but I went to a school very similar to Point Loma. And uh, I remember after I'd been there a couple of years, uh, I, had been, I had been dating this same person for a couple of years. We were very, you know, college serious. And uh, I remember it was the spring of the year, and it was about the beginning of April. And everybody knows that that means it's almost April 1st. And everybody knows that April 1st is... April Fool's Day, that's right. So somehow, in my messed up brain, I thought, you know what would be hilarious? Is if I did a, a, a fake marriage proposal to my girl. See, you already know where this is going, right? It's bad, y'all, it's, it's bad. It's very bad. Uh, uh, but uh, then I remember, you know, somehow in my messed up brain, thinking, you know what would be even more hilarious is if I got an actual engagement ring box that when you opened it, this little sign came up and said, like, April Fool's. And uh, I know, it's, it's bad. It's bad. Uh, but then I, I remember thinking, you know what would be even more hilarious is if I did that in the university cafeteria. And uh, no, I I did that, y'all. I did that. Did it. Got down on one knee on about April Fool Day. There were tears, many tears, and not the good kind. Not the good kind. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. Okay? Learn from my mistakes and my honest confession this morning. Uh, but it, it is true. I, I, I really do believe one of the best things about being a part of, of a local church is that when we're at our best, this is a place where when things don't go well, things aren't right, mistakes are made, 
we can be honest about those things and try to learn and, and, and grow from them together. But here's the catch. The catch is, it's just not always that easy to be honest. It, it's just not always that easy to really be honest with ourselves, with others, about what's going on in our life, what we're experiencing, or even what we are seeing in the world around us. And it is especially, I think, not that easy to be honest about those things when they're not good, they're not right, something's off, something's broken, something's unjust, something is amiss. And that's what brings us to today, the first Sunday of the season of Lent. So Lent being these, these 40 days that will lead us up to the celebration of Christ's death and, and resurrection that we will do at Easter. And I think, I think for a lot of folks, when they think about Lent, the season of Lent, they think about it maybe primarily as a time to sort of um, give up stuff. You know, kind of the, the 40 days of self-denial or something like that. So you'll hear people say like, you know, I'm, I'm giving up Miguel's white sauce for Lent, or, uh, you know, maybe that's a bridge too far. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm giving up Taylor Swift for Lent or something. I don't know. I, I couldn't do that. I'm weak. I would not be able to. Uh, but the truth is, Lent is, is much more serious than that. Lent is really designed to be this time, this season of reflection, um, examination, even introspection, that is supposed to get us in touch with our need for redemption. Why, why do we need the, the Christ's death and resurrection that we will, that we will celebrate in Easter? Uh, so, in other words, Lent is sort of like this invitation to this journey of honesty, really being honest about what's happening in our own lives, uh, what we are experiencing, even what we are seeing in our world around us, and especially trying to be honest about those things when they aren't good, they aren't right, something's off, something's broken, something is amiss. So if, if that's what Lent is, if Lent is this kind of invitation to this journey of honesty that, that gets us in touch with our need for Easter, how do we do that? And I think there's a lot of really good ways to, to lean into Lent. So this morning, I just want to mention one way and, and look at one passage of Scripture to kind of go with that. And, and here it is. I think if we're going to try to lean into Lent as this this journey of honesty that, that gets us in touch with our need for Easter. One thing we might have to do, we might have to think a little differently about how we talk to God, how we pray, maybe even how we sing about God. And we might have to think a little bit differently about how we talk to God or pray or sing about God, especially about what's happening in our lives, what we're seeing in our world around us, and especially when those things maybe aren't good or are broken or are off or amiss in some way. Now, I don't know about you, but like where I came from when I was coming up, whenever people would talk about talking to God or praying or singing to God, whatever, there was always this kind of idea that that should always only be 
positive. Like, no negativity. Like we, want, we want positive vibes only in all of that. So, you know, when I was coming up, there was always this thought of, you know, whenever people would talk about talking to God or praying or singing or whatever, they would always say things like, um, you know, God is good all the time. And do you know the rest of it? All the time, God is good. Can I get an amen? Uh, or they would say, like, uh, God is on God's throne and all is right with the world. Can I get a witness from the congregation? The truth is, though, if we're really going to lean in to Lent as this journey in to honesty that, that, that gets us in touch with our, our need for Easter, we might have to think a little differently about how we talk to God how we pray, maybe even how we sing about God, especially about what is happening in our own lives, what we see around us in our world. So if that's what it is, where can we go for that? You might know that in Scripture, the largest collection of the prayers of the people of God is found in the Old Testament book of Psalms. And you might remember that Psalms is, is like an archive. It's like a, like a mini library of ancient Israel's songs and prayers and, and rituals and worship texts. Many of them, no doubt, originated as actual kind of formal liturgical compositions that were used for worship in the temple back in ancient Israel. But you might also remember that in the book of Psalms, there's a really wide variety of, of types of songs or, or kinds of prayers that are in these, in, in these collections. And one type of prayer that shows up in the book of Psalms from God's people, one type of psalm that's there, is what we call the lament psalm. And you might know that the lament psalm is like this, this cry to God. I mean, the, the worshipers are, they're praying, but they're like, crying out to God, complaining even to God about what is happening in their own lives, what they're experiencing, and even what they are seeing in their world around them. And so this morning, I want us to look for just a second at one of these lament prayers in the book of Psalms. So if you have your Bible or your phone or, or whatever, and you want to turn, we're going to look at Psalm 88 this morning. Psalm 88. For a second this morning. And in Psalm 88, we have the words of this ancient Israelite worshiper of long ago who lifts their voice in prayer to God, but crying out to God, crying out over what they are experiencing in their life, what they are seeing in their world around them. And I have to tell you that what we hear in this prayer in Psalm 88 might not sound very much like what we usually think of when we think of prayer or, or talking to God. So look with me, if you would, just right at the beginning of Psalm 88 there in verse 1. I, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version here. The, this worshiper begins their prayer with these words in verse 1. They say, When at night I cry out in your presence, let my prayer come before you incline your ear to my cry. I think you can hear it right from the start. This worshiper just lifts their voice in this cry to God, saying, God, I'm crying out to you in the dark of night. I'm lifting this prayer, hoping you will hear my words. 
and then goes on a little bit. Look at verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. That's the, the place of the dead in Hebrew thought in the Old Testament. I'm like those who are going down to the pit. I'm like those who have no help. I mean, can you hear this this morning? This, this worshiper lifting their voice saying, God, I'm, I'm crying out to you, not only in the dark of night, but I mean, I am, my life is overrun by troubles. I, I'm being dragged down to the pit. I'm at the point of death and I'm lifting my voice to you. Now, I'll be honest with you. Here's what I think is really interesting to me about this psalm. If you jump down a couple of verses, say jump down to verse 6, all of a sudden something changes in this worshiper's prayer. And all of a sudden in verse 6, kind of quite out of the blue, the worshiper begins to blame God for what is happening in their life and in their world. Hey, look at it with me. Like all of a sudden in verse 6, we get this. The worshiper prays, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. I mean, hello. <laughs> what, what just happened? Like, all of a sudden, this worshiper praying to God says to God, you've done this to me. You're the reason that I'm going through this. You're to blame for what is happening to me. I've not done anything to deserve this. I've not brought this on myself. You've done this to me, oh God. Wow. And if you notice, over the next several verses, the worshiper goes on to kind of cont continue to pray in that same vein. But I'll tell you again what I find really interesting. Jump down a few verses. Jump down to verse 13. Note the contrast here. In verse 13, the worshiper prays this to God. It says, but I, O Lord, see the contrast here, says, I see what you've been up to, God, but I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? Can you see this theme of the absence of God? Say, God, I feel like you're not here. I feel like you're present. You've just abandoned me in the midst of this trouble. Like when, when, when things got tough, God, you got going. And here I am alone in the midst of this. But to be honest, the thing that really intrigues me the most about this prayer in this psalm is the way it ends. Jump all the way down to the last verse of this psalm, verse 18. This worshiper concludes this whole prayer to God with this statement in verse 18. Look at it with me. The worshiper ends this prayer by saying, you have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. I, I, I mean, that's it, right? That's the end of the prayer. He just says, God, you've done this to me. Amen. Which is weird because, I mean, as you may know, many of these lament psalms in the book of Psalms end with this sort of turn to praise, 
and turn to joy where the worshiper says, Oh God, I, I will praise you when this deliverance comes. Or, oh God, I will sing your praises in the congregation. Not this one. Right? This one, the worshiper just ends by saying, You've done this to me, oh God. That's it. I mean, what in the world kind of prayer is this? Like, like, what kind of way of talking to God is this? And remember, Israel had this, this prayer of lament as part of their practice of prayer and worship. I mean, they, they had this theology of lament as part of their theology of prayer and their theology of worship. They, they were allowed to say these things in prayer and in worship to God. In fact, it's interesting, about 60% of the Psalms in the book of Psalms are these lament Psalms. 60%. Which means like here in their, you know, actual formal liturgical texts used for worship in the temple, you've got prayers like Psalm 88. So this morning, I just kind of want us to think for a second about what does this mean for us? What does it mean that Israel has this theology of lament, this, this theology of crying out as part of their theology of prayer and their theology of worship? And to me, I think it really means at least one thing. In fact, I think one word captures it. To me, what I think it means that Israel has this theology of lament as part of their theology of prayer and worship, it, to me it comes down to one word. This is about honesty. These are prayers where these worshipers are just being gut-level honest with God about what, is, what they are experiencing in their life, what they are feeling, what they are seeing in their world around them. They're just being gut-level honest. I mean, these laments are prayers that honestly face and express the darkness of life and refuse to just cover it up, refuse to just slap a Band-Aid on it and say everything's fine. No, these are prayers that are just being gut-level honest with God about what's happening. And I think it's interesting because, I, again, I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of times in our culture, even in our churches, we tend to think that any expression of negativity is an act of unfaith. Right? Oh, if you really had faith, you wouldn't say those things. If you really had faith, you wouldn't feel those things. But that's not what we see here in Scripture. What we see here is even grief, even anger, even, even blame is expressed to God in this deeply honest sort of way. I mean, these worshipers seem to have this conviction that whatever must be said, whatever you feel like must be said, about your life, about the world, whatever must be said can be said to God. These laments are honest to God in the truest sense of that phrase.
and God receives it. So I want us to notice this morning what these laments do that make these prayers so powerful. Notice these laments, they sort of challenge what I think is even the dominant reality of sort of our culture today. I've got this sense that in our culture today, the dominant reality is sort of one of covering over. Whitewashing. Obfuscating. There's nothing wrong here. Everything's fine. Everyone's fine. It's all good. Nothing to see here. Move on. But these prayers challenge that dominant reality because they publicly name and express the things that are fearful, that are broken, that are grievous, that are unjust. They drag those things out into the light and speak about them honestly so that we can grieve over them and so that we can look to the hope that comes in the good news of resurrection. So this morning, I wonder if I can just bring this together with a little example that comes from uh, the field of psychology. I want to be careful. No, we got some trained psychologists in here. I don't want to generate any laments after the serves, but, uh, but specifically I'm thinking about child psychology. So you may be aware that psychologists spend a lot of time studying how children develop, especially in relationship to uh, their caregivers, their parents, and, and, and whatnot. And so it's interesting, psychologists have sort of noted that a child will learn to hide or, or deny or suppress anything about themselves that they think their caregiver finds unacceptable in order to sort of maintain the attachment and the approval, the relationship with that caregiver. So, like, for example, you know, child falls down, gets hurt, starts to cry, you know, parent says, that doesn't hurt, get up, you're all right. Okay. Over time, that child learns to hide pain, deny pain, to maintain the approval, the attachment of that caregiver. This results in what psychologists say they call the creation of a false self. In other words, we put forward to someone not who we really are, but who we think we have to be in order to maintain their approval and that relationship with them. And this is reversed through what psychologists call matching or empathetic parenting. Right? A child falls down, gets hurt. parent says, that does hurt. It's okay to cry when you're hurt. The reason I bring that up, it's interesting, when you read all the way through these lament psalms in the book of Psalms, a funny thing happens to the picture of God. When you read all the way through these lament psalms, God, in the end, comes off looking not like the bad parent who just abandons the child if everything isn't going just right, and not like the parent who demands that construction of a false something else in order to be in that presence and in that relationship. But when you get to the end of these lament psalms, God in the end comes off looking like the true parent who allows the child to express their true self and yet stays with them. In other words, God comes off looking like this parent who does not demand the construction of that false self to be in relationship, to be in prayer, to be in worship. And I'll confess to you, I do worry about it. 
I worry, I don't think we mean to do it. I want to be clear about that. I don't think we mean to. But I think a lot of times in the church, we give off this impression that if you want to be in relationship with God, or you want to worship, or you want to pray to God, you need to kind of have it together a little bit. Okay? And if you don't have it together, act like you do. Because that's what we do here. Okay? And I don't think we mean to do it. And yet, cutting right through that is this practice of lament that says God, in the end, is like this true parent who allows the child to express their true self and yet stays with them. And I wonder if sometimes this is not one of those things that sometimes is just missing from our church life today. Giving people the chance to honestly grieve and express before God what is happening in their lives, even if they need to lament about it. Or as the uh, Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann says, in the church today, we so often have all Easter Sundays and no Good Fridays. And so, Lent. Lent is this invitation to a season of the Christian life, an invitation to a season of honesty, being honest with God about what's happening in our own lives, what we're seeing in our world around us, even when, maybe especially when, those things aren't good. They're broken. They're in need of Easter. And we prepare for the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection by being honest with God. Because I think it's true that only honesty and lament really permit newness and resurrection. Only Lent permits Easter. I can't think of a better way to respond to this scripture that is before us today than to engage in the practice of the Lord's Supper together as a congregation and to take communion. The very symbol in the Christian tradition of honesty and grief over broken body, shed blood, and all that that means for us in relationship to God. And so we're going to do that. In just a moment, we're going to share in communion together to respond to the scripture. And uh, before we do that, let me just mention, in case you're visiting with us or not normally with us, uh, here in the church and in our tradition, we practice what's called open communion, which means you don't have to be a member of this church or a member of any specific church to share in communion with us. If you're here to seek the Lord this morning, you're welcome to the table. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to have, uh, at this time, I, let's go ahead and have the servers who are going to have us come forward. Pastor Russ is going to come. Musicians will come as well. And uh, in just a moment, what's going to happen is they'll have the uh, elements across the front. We'll ask you in a moment to come forward and receive the elements. If you can't do that, just give a wave and someone will bring them to you. And uh, return to your seat. Just hold them. We'll take them together as Pastor Russ will lead us afterwards. And, uh, and we will enjoy and celebrate the meaning of this sacrament together. Let me pray for us as we go into this time. Lord, it is with grateful hearts 
that we receive your grace that invites us as we are into your presence, into relationship with you. We recognize and we thank you this morning that when we are honest and we come before you, there is a God who not only receives that, but you meet us there and you journey with us, first to a cross and then ultimately to an empty tomb. So this morning, we pray as we partake in this sacred practice together. We pray that you would sanctify these elements, that they might become the body and blood of Christ for us, and then that you would sanctify us, that we might be the body of Christ for the world. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.